Thank you for joining us on this episode of Eminent Teachnology with Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett, where we examine current and emerging technologies through the lens of diversity and equality. Uh, hello, everybody, and welcome back to a new episode of Eminent Teachnology with Dr. Rochelle Newton and Drew Stennett. Uh, today, we have a very special topic, which I hope I live up to all of the expectations on, which is uh, Ask Drew Questions. So we're going to go through some uh, questions, and I will try my best to answer them, or at least to speak somewhat intelligently about, or I'll try and fake my way through them, which uh, may lean heavily towards, but <laughs> we'll find out. So I want to start off by telling everybody a little bit about Drew. So um, I met Drew at Duke. Uh, he and I worked together. Uh, obviously, he was in central IT and I was at uh, the law school. And uh, we would, well, let me add a little bit more for this. So a while ago, we had uh, someone, uh, our own technical expert at the law school who knew everything there was to know about everything. And he left us. And when he left us, it kind of left us in a lurch. We had things we didn't know how to do or things we weren't sure we should do. And so because uh, Drew is such a wonderful person, and really is, you really have to get to know him in real life. You know, I would call on Drew and ask for help. And someone, I think it was uh, one, of, one of his colleagues told me uh, that Drew was always, you know, researching and interesting and interested in new technology. So over the years, Drew has saved us many times. He has came and taught us classes about everything from Kubernetes to GitLab, GitHub, uh, Go. Uh, we learned a lot. Drew just taught us a lot. We really learned a lot from Drew. And so I always think it's important that you bring out the talents of people that are around you so people can see how smart they are. So the Ask Drew uh, series is, you know, we don't do it often, but there are series that we just are going to uh, pick Drew's brain to see what we can learn. And he's not going to fake it. He knows everything. <laughs> so I don't think he'll need to fake it. So I want to start off by asking um, a question that I have heard. It's not, I don't hear it as much now as before. Is why is it that some people put in, um, let's just say if I were going to send you an email, do Drew.stinnett instead of the dot, I would put D-O-T. And then instead of the at, I'd put the word at. And then let's just say I was going to send it to him at Gmail. Then I put Gmail and then I put the word dot again. What was the purpose of the dot and the at that people felt they needed to do that? Oh, that's a that's a great question, Rochelle. And I think this is one I won't have to fake my way through. So I appreciate you starting off with that one. <laughs> so the way that email works is... E oh, I will try not to get too deep on here, but when you send an email to somebody, the internet or all these things connected together have to know where to deliver like that piece of mail. So in the old days, the at may actually be like the name of a full server. So uh, let's say you had a small university or a big university or whatever else, your email would be at, and then the name of the server that ran your email and that server could be like it could be a server well it's always going to be a server but it could live wherever right it could be in a data center it could be under somebody's desk wherever it's going to be and much like the way that uh urls work where you have a domain right like if you go to www.google.com the internet knows how to look that domain up 
and map it to an IP address, which it can then map to a server itself. So the way emails work is if you're saying, hey, send me a message to drew at uh, coolserver.com, the internet can look up the thing that's after the at symbol or the ampersand, which is, I guess, the fancy name for it, <laughs> and uh, say, okay, so I need to, I know that I need to deliver this piece of mail to coolserver.com. And it can look up, see where that server lives, and then send it on. Once it gets to coolserver.com, then uh, the server needs to figure out whose mailbox to put it in. And that's where the things before the ampersand come in. So if my email is drew at coolserver.com, after the at coolserver.com, the message gets there. And then before the ampersand, the username, that's how it knows that it comes to my mailbox versus my wife's mailbox or son's mailbox or someone else in the, in the family's inbox. The dots are a little bit more special. The dots, and I, I could be wrong on this, but I believe you can actually remove the dots from an email and it will still work correctly. They're just for like, uh, instead of having, so say my email was drew.stinnett at coolserver.com. I think Drew Stinnett would also work, but the dot is a nice visual rep representation of, well, let's just, let's just, you know, make it look a little, let's split it up a little bit so we can clearly tell first name from last name. Uh, but I believe you can actually remove that if you wanted to, and the email would still flow. Uh, there were other things like for a while, and I think this still works as well, you could use a plus in your email. So I could be like Drew Stinnett plus uh banking at coolserver.com and that would still get routed to drew stinnett because drew stinnett is even before that plus but then i could use the uh whatever is after the plus symbol to do additional like uh foldering rules so if i wanted all of my banking stuff and i made sure to give my banking email as drew.stinnett plus banking at coolserver.com, it could then split that up. So they're all they're all sort of indicators on where the email itself should go. And it's gotten a lot fancier now, right? Like gmail.com, everybody got a Gmail address or a lot of people have Gmail addresses. And gmail.com is not a single server that's sitting under someone's desk. It's you know a farm of servers. But the mail protocol has all of that straightened out under the cover. So you really don't even have to think about it. Um, where I worked before Duke, it was sort of funny because they, uh, they had a domain for every one of their locations. So if you, live, or if you work from their Raleigh office, your email address would be drew at raleigh.company.com. Or if you, if you worked in uh, Texas, your email address would be drew at texas.company.com, which I thought was very interesting, but that's sort of a holdover from the olden days when mail routing needed more information in the email. And we don't, we don't really need that now. Like all of that stuff has been worked out. So you can just have one email address and then through the magic of uh, mail protocol, it knows how to get it where it needs to be. Exactly. So and I think I, I haven't seen uh, first name dot last name at uh, gmail dot com. I haven't seen an email like that or seen anything like that in a while. So it seems like that has gone 
by the wayside, or at least it's not yeah. as important as to what we used to do and what you said about, you know, routing, you yeah. know, so like, for example, at some universities, some organizations, you have for distinction purposes and for, you know, number of purposes, first name, dot last name, is, as opposed to just last name. And I'll give you an example at the law school. So we had um, a professor and an administrator that had the exact same last name. Mm-hmm. And, and at the time we were last name at law.duke.edu. That's who we were, whatever that was. Yeah. And when those, when the incident came where the two people had the same last name, that policy kind of went awry because, you know, you could do something like if the first, if the first, if the guy's first name was John Smith, you could do Jay Smith, or you could do John Smith or something like that to distinguish. But I think what many organizations did was to go to first name dot last name as a to keep that policy from coming up but also to be sure that any other aliases you may have will get routed to that primary username so first name dot last name be your primary but you could be your last name or you could be uh some other kind of formation of characters but you know whatever you want but that would be your email protocol so now that we've gotten that part straight the question I have about email addresses. So we have lots of aliases under our, our email addresses. And, you know, in, in an organization, they control how email is done and who gets what email and what address. Whereas, you know, if you take something like Gmail, um, I think I have four or maybe five Gmail accounts. Yeah. I have no idea why, you know, started back in the, the day, it was fun to create them, but not anymore trying to delete them. Yeah. But policies in place there so for example my name in gmail from when i first created my gmail account was hyphenated mm-hmm. uh, name and so when i divorced and tried to change it to just my last name which is what my legal name is i could not i cannot change it why can't i change my email address you know i understand why you can't in the in an organization a large organization you can change you know if you get married or you get divorced you can put in a request to have your name changed. But why is that not the same in, in free e- email apps like Gmail and Yahoo and such? That's a really good question. And I, I, like, I totally feel your pain there, Rochelle, because I recently tried to get a new Gmail uh, email address. Uh, I, like right now I use like a vanity domain and the vanity domains are going away from Gmail theoretically. So I was like, well, I'll just suck it up and get like a real Gmail account. And uh, like, I couldn't find any, like all of the variations of Drew Stinnett are taken on Gmail, like (laughs) most of which by me and I've forgotten the password, which is on me, but there are also like plenty of other like variations that I've tried and like, I couldn't get them. And uh, I was talking about this with my uh, uh, brother and dad, like I I landed on Drew Stinnett 78, I think, but I also, 78 is my birth year. But I also don't really like having my birth year in my email address uh, for like professionally, I don't want to be subject to age discrimination uh, when I'm applying for jobs. And I also just don't think people should have to know what my birthday is if they want to email me. So like, it's a hard problem, right? Like, I don't want to be Drew Stennett and then a random number, and I don't really want to have my name in it, but I also don't want it to be incredibly hard for people to remember and like I feel like there's just no winning right and discern is really this drew that you want to email versus another drew and I say one of the things that we haven't really given much thought about if you think about early America so you know 
not not including slavery, but people coming through Ellis Island, Ellis Island, you know, their names, whatever their names were, right? Mm-hmm. So they come in with that. But then over time, when you have this this society that kind of meshes with itself, so John Smith, um, it's a very generic name. I'm sure there's somebody in real life named John Smith, right? Mm-hmm. Or Jane Doe. I don't know if anybody in real life is named that, but 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 such. But it's you know it's hard to narrow down things because I think the companies that do this domain stuff they reserve a certain amount of domain names so that they're not available. So all of those Drew students, probably maybe ten or some of them may be active, but the rest of the company may reserve that. I don't want to give that out or something like that. I don't want to give you that address. Mm-hmm. So as a consumer. You know, and you're you're looking to set up your first, you know, email account. You have the choice of of going to several, you know, companies make make Gmail. You know, Yahoo does, uh, Google does, Microsoft does. There are a ton of people who make these aliases. So when you think about where am I going to get my name from? Remember, all these other companies that are reserving names and content, you're competing with them. So you're just a small individual asking to be Drew Stennett. But mm-hmm. let's just say Microsoft wants Stennett because they may have had an employee working there named Stennett or something like that, whatever the case may be. So mm-hmm. you have to factor that in there as well, that you are not the only person requesting this and, and big companies reserve these addresses as well, usernames for various purposes. I'm not exactly clear on why they reserve them, but they do. Yeah. But that brings me to my next question. So, okay, I can have all of these email addresses, I, I can't necessarily change them. I and if I got forgot the password, you know, what came into place now with two-factor authentication, Duo, and all of these other things came along, it made it harder to get your account back once you forgot it. Mm-hmm. So what the password managers do is they give you a master password. And as long as you know the master password, you are safe. But if you forget that master password, your SOL, and you all can figure out what SOL means, but SOL, right? <laughs> yeah. And so with these other kinds of things, so if you create an account, so let's just say I created an account in 1990, and of course mm-hmm. I haven't used it in many years. What happens to those accounts that are out there floating around that people forgot the passwords or no longer needs? What happens to those accounts? So there's lots of different things that can happen to them. Uh, some are good and some are bad. Uh, and it, it sort of depends on the po- on the company's policy and like where they are in that policy because the policies change. So for Google or slash Gmail, I don't think they ever actually remove your old email account, but I think they do reserve the right to do that. Um, so they could say like, hey, if no one has logged into Drew Stinnett at gmail.com for 10 years, we're just going to delete it. But one thing they may want to do, and I hope that they do, is they prevent anybody else from coming in and re-registering that Drew.Stinnett. Because so say I own Drew.Stinnett at gmail.com 20 years ago, which I think I did. <laughs> and I have since forgotten the password and never had it in the password manager because it was created 20 years ago. Like I've tried everything. I cannot get back into that account. Uh, so it would be great to me if Google just said, hey, nobody's logged in here for two decades. It's time to delete it. 
But what I don't want to happen is for them to delete it and then some other Drew Stennett come along and register it and then start getting all of the email that used to flow to that server because that's like a, a privacy concern, right? right? And like by that like same logic, like I wouldn't want to register, uh, say my name is Bill Gates, right? Like if I get Bill Gates at yahoo.com and then the real Bill Gates comes along. I'm, I'm sort of losing track of my, my point here. <laughs> but say like, yeah, I had Bill Gates at that com. I abandoned it. And then the real Bill Gates came in and got it. And now he's all of a sudden getting email that was meant for me or vice versa. So to me, it seems like these emails should be like a one-time thing, right? You create it uh, and maybe you're not going to use it anymore. Maybe it's going to be deleted, but like you don't want to you don't want anyone else to get it. There was recently an issue. Uh, this wasn't specifically for email, but this was for a piece of software used by Python, where years ago, someone had written a piece of Python software uh, and then uploaded it to like the centralized Python package repository with their username. Got like a fair amount of use, it's great wasn't super popular, but people used it. Well, that user deleted his account. Some weeks or months went by, someone noticed that that account was gone and they re-registered that person's name and then put malware up instead of his, his or her like actual software. So all of a sudden, like now this user's username is out there with like known malware, <laughs> which is bad. But like, I feel like the real fix there should have been that once an account is deactivated, nobody should be able to re-register that name and start using it for, for anything. Uh, the flip side to that is like, there's a finite number of names. I mean, that number is big, but like, and again, speaking from experience, like it's really hard to get something that fits your name if everyone has already slurped up your name and you can't get it back, right? Like I've... I feel like I'm a pretty imaginative person and I cannot think of any other like uh, combinations of Drew Stennett to get on Gmail <laughs> and like have it be slightly useful to anybody. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that interesting thing uh, in that process is like, you know, lost mail and lost content, if you don't have some way to gain access to it is lost forever in the ether that is the internet, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't know, you know, what's happening to your stuff if you've lost it. So we have ad advocated for not writing down your passwords, to not have your passwords on a piece of paper or something like that in your wallet or something like that. But I have found as I got older, I have a password. So I use LastPass. Mm -hmm. LastPass is fickle, right? So if I restart my computer, it doesn't recognize all the apps that's coming back up, uh, up or something. So it's really weird stuff like that. Yeah. But the other part is I found that I needed some place to keep my passwords that only I can see. Mm -hmm. So uh, what Apple does a really good job, they have an app on your phone called Notes. And in Notes, I keep certain passwords that I need to know and I use often in Notes. Mm -hmm. And then I can copy and paste them into whatever it is. And then the two-factor authentication can do whatever it needs to do. But as a consumer that's just too much to know and too much to do as a technician. Okay. This is easy. I understand why we're doing this. I understand all that. But then when you think about the process for the end user, okay, I'm not, I've logged into this account. 
something came up. So let's just say arguments. You logged into your account, created your new uh, Gmail account, logged into it, and you got COVID. You were in the hospital for three or four, five, six months, and you haven't logged in, and you don't remember the password. So Google's when you set up your account, Google gives you a way to confirm your account. So you can use a second email or a phone number or something to confirm your account. Mm-hmm. That looks like spam almost every time it comes up. It looks like spam. It does not look like a real legitimate thing I'm doing. Yep. So for consumers, what do you recommend that they do? To, one, keep track of their passwords and their accounts. And two, to make sure that they are responding to the right thing. So we, we all said we need two-factor authentication everywhere. We, we kind of, I think, at least I did, stay, stayed away from the idea of encrypting everything. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what are the ways to maintain your accounts without writing your passwords down? And if you don't have a password manager? Yeah, that's, uh, it's hard. <laughs> I mean, there is like one thing, uh, like, so we say like, don't write them down. And while I think like for the most part, you don't want to do that. I think an argument could be made that like, if you really do have important passwords and you don't want to use a password manager using some sort of like small notebook with your passwords, I don't think that's the end of the world, especially if you're like not leaving it in a public place, right? Like I don't want to write all my passwords down in a small notebook and leave it on my desk at work, right? Like that's not, that's not great. You don't want anybody to just come by and look at it. Uh, On the flip side to that, if I wrote all of my passwords down in a notebook and put it in our home safe, that feels pretty safe to me, right? Like, I don't think that that's the end of the world. And sort of maybe a a middle ground of that is, yeah, I'm gonna keep my passwords in a notebook that are on my desk at home, right? That only me and my wife and my kid have access to. That feels like a pretty good uh, middle ground. And I know a lot of, of older folks do that, which I think is very like, it's fine. Like, I think that's what my parents do. Like whenever we're trying to get that Wi-Fi password, they don't know what it is, but they've got it in a notebook somewhere and <laughs> we can get it real fast. <laughs> like, like it's not, uh, it's not difficult to, uh, to get because they have it written down and their handwriting is much better than mine. So it's probably actually like legible. <laughs> um, Yeah. And another thing I would sort of add, like, I think LastPass has gotten pretty bad lately. Like, it is not as easy as it used to be to use. Uh, There are a couple other better ones that I would probably recommend now. There's 1Password, which is not completely free, which I don't like. (laughs) Like you do, there is like a, it's like, I don't know, a dollar a month or $4 a month or something that's inexpensive, but not free. So that's a good option. There's also a piece of software called Bitwarden, which is uh, completely free. That's a that's a pretty good password manager that you could use. I would spell say spell, spell the name of that when you use uh, it. B I T W A R D O N, like Bitwarden. I think Warden, like somebody that runs a jail. I think is the is the background on that one. Um, they are like a commercial company, so you can buy like extra features in there and get some extra stuff in their paid version. But from the folks that I've talked to, the free version works really well if you're just a single person not wanting to share passwords with other Bitwarden users. Um, so I would recommend that. I, I feel like a password manager probably still is the way to go, but there is a 
there's going to be like a startup delay. Like you have to, you have to spend some time sort of getting familiar with the interface and they're all a little bit different and none of them are quite perfect. Uh, but uh, I feel like LastPass is getting worse and worse. <laughs> every, every time I use it, I'm like, oh, I don't like this. So I've mostly switched to, to one password, but uh, yeah, it's, it's hard. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that I think that's what I was trying to say. And one other thing I wanted to get out too, uh, sort of jumping back to email, is one thing that is bad about abandoned email accounts was that a lot of the rules around privacy in email addresses are not built for email. So the government can't just go to Google and say, show me all of this user's email without a warrant. Uh, the exception there is if it's an abandoned email account. And if it's an abandoned email account, government can get whatever they want out of there. So that's why I sort of wish that Google would not keep those accounts around forever and they would just like delete it because I don't know, I just don't want all of my old emails out there like in the public domain, right? Like get rid of it. If I can't get in there and if nobody's gotten in there for 10, 20 years, like please delete it. Don't just leave it sitting there waiting for whatever government to come around and use it for something that's not in my best interests. And that's one of those laws where like- that, Not only that, you know, not, not only in your best interest from the government, but from anybody else. I mean, we are living in the world where hackers and, and people who want to do bad things are out there. So, you know, Google, I think probably right up there with Apple does a good job of protecting your data as much as they can, but they're not there for you. They're there to make money. So, you know, it's always a trade-off into what you get versus what you need. Mm -hmm. And so if you have an old account, I think it would do you some good to at least know the address. So if it was a Gmail account, at least know that. So that if in the event you get some email or something about it, you remember, oh yeah, this was my account. Mm -hmm. And so what I do is I keep track of all the accounts I create and I haven't written down, you know, the count, the date I created and all that stuff. And I keep track, but there are some that I didn't become this religious about this before. I used to be terrible about this. Just create an account. I need an account to keep these people from bothering me. Let me send the email. I don't ever look at this email account. So, Hey, I've solved my problem of being harassed, but now I got an email floating around out there that I don't have access to anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, I, this, I feel like this is very timely because I went through this when I was looking to change my email address and like the password manager was great for me because I now have a list of where all my accounts are. And as I'm going through there, it was very monotonous, but like, as I'm going through site by site, I would find things where it'd be like, why did I have an account on this server? Like, I don't want to go through the trouble of changing this. I just want to delete this account. And a lot of sites out there, more than I was expecting, like don't have a way for you to delete your account without like, you know, emailing them or asking them for one of those like GDPR exceptions where they have to like by law delete you yeah. if you're a European citizen. It's not so good for us uh, Americans, but uh, it's like not easy to do. And like even for things like there was just stupid forums and things that I had accounts on and it was like. I mean, on one hand, I could just change the password to something ridiculous that I don't care about and then just never log in again. But, you know, on the other hand, I just don't want my account still out there 
for the you know rest of the time of the internet like it's it's nice to be able to kill that stuff as you move on and you know have different interests and you know i don't want like uh and this still happens is uh, we've talked a few times about that have i been pwned site where you get a notification if uh, your email address is involved in a data leak so like maybe i had an account on you know randomforum.com that i haven't used in 20 years and now all of a sudden randomforum.com has their uh, usernames and passwords leaked and now like my information is out there in some dump. Like maybe I don't care about the information that people could use it to get access to, but I also just don't want my name associated and all that stress. Like I don't want have I been pwned sending me emails every day telling me that uh, <laughs> my email and password have been leaked for sites that I don't care about. Right. So, so I know we are running out of time for this session, but I have one last question and we can continue part two of Drew answers uh, next time we meet. But my next question is about bit.ly or tiny URLs. Oh yeah. What, what are the purposes of them and are they still in use today? They are. And I will say they are, I will say they're there and they're useful with caveats. So bit.ly or bit.ly or what was the other one you said, Rochelle? Tiny URL. Tiny URL. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've been on the internet for a while and like uh, most of us has pro have probably wanted to send a link to a family or friend of some page that you saw on the internet. And if you like move your mouse up to the URL bar in the browser, select all and then copy it, like those links are not super friendly. Like sometimes you may get one and it could be like, you know, five lines long of what looks like gibberish. And personally, I don't really like clicking those types of links. <laughs> so what folks like uh, Bitly and TinyURL did is they made a service where you can get a long link that is not easy to remember, right? Like if you, if you have a, <laughs> a thousand character URL, you're going to have to copy paste that. Nobody's going to be able to remember it. So what these... URL shortening services do are you can say, hey, here's this super long URL. I want something that's way smaller and easier to remember that I can send to people. So you go to their website, you say, give me a tiny URL of this. And a lot of times you can even pick what you want the shortcut to be. So like you could have, say I had a, uh, a sub page on my website about consumer safety but I don't want people to have to remember uh, Drew and Rochelle's coolcompany.com forward slash articles forward slash August forward slash five forward slash three forward slash blah, 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 blah. I could copy that URL and paste it into tiny URL and say, hey, give me a smaller URL and make it end with uh, Drew's privacy. And then you could have tiny URL slash Drew's privacy, which is much easier to remember and much easier to copy paste into miscellaneous uh, emails, texts, other websites, whatever you want. The flip side of that, because as we talk about in this podcast, nothing is ever free, <laughs> right? So what happens when you do that is that tiny URL gets to mine who is clicking that link and where they are going and keep 
track of that. And then they can use that data to uh, sell advertising or whatever else they want. So you're sort of offloading your complexity over to tiny URL for the maybe small, maybe not so small cost of now tiny URL is going to know exactly who is going to your site and using that link. Uh, they also provide you like nice information about that. Like one thing I sort of like about URL services is that you can then like, they'll give you like uh, statistics on who's clicking your link. So it's nice to be able to say like, oh, well, you know, I put this link out here. Uh, if I had access to the backend server logs, I could also get them there, but that's not always the case. So if I had a tiny URL thing, I could say, hey, here's my tiny URL. Y'all click this if you want to read it. And then I would see like, nice statistics from tiny URL that shows me who's clicking things, where they're coming from, how often, uh, what time of day people are clicking, lots of information, but it's also sort of a trade-off because I'm giving that, I'm giving up some of my privacy to a third-party company to be able to do this. I've seen a lot of companies and places are spinning up internal tools to do that. So that instead of turning your information over to, you know, tinyurl.com, maybe you're just turning it over to someone else in your organization that runs the URL shortening business, and that's fine. Uh, the other side to that is a lot of times people will use those tiny URLs to hide uh, malware in. <laughs> so if you have a tiny URL that just says forward, you know, say you've got tiny URL slash cute cats. Hey, that's something I would love to click on because I love looking at cat pictures. However, maybe that would take me to a malware site, right? Like is cute cats actually going to take me to, you know, hack everyone.ru slash download this? And to get around that, and this is where things get messy again, there are services that will expand a URL for you without having to go to the URL itself and I think most of them will even do that if you just add like a question mark at the end or something, or they'll have a little form that you can put into their main site and say, what would this actually expand out to? But I, I don't know. I feel like that's putting too much work on the user to remember to do that uh, every time. Yeah. And, and I think that the trade-off of all these things is we're always struggling to find more convenience, right? We want everything mm -hmm. to be simpler than it was before. So all these ideas we have now about technology, we didn't have 10 years ago, you know, so why do we need a tiny URL or a bit.ly, you know, all of these different things. And people keep coming out with that. And I think you talked about this a while ago. We talked about VPNs, right? So mm -hmm. you're trading off. So whether you send somebody that 50 character, 100 character, 2000 character URL, or whether you're sending them something that goes to tiny URL or bit.ly or whoever it is, you're giving them a part of your information. You have to remember everything that you do you hit enter or send or whatever you may be, you're putting your information in the open space. And that doesn't mean it's open to everybody to see, but it's a public domain. It is not encrypted. It's not private. Nothing about the internet was designed for us to be safe on. It was just designed for us to use. And as it is exp exp expanded over time, what we have now is we have this internet that has all kinds of different parts to it. And you never know what, it's like a, um, a spaghetti highway, right? So you go like California, you can imagine all those different highways connecting, going on the other, all the traffic jams that's happening on that. That's what the internet is. 
And so if you're driving down the highway in California, you have a blue car and you have a, a, a emblem on the back of it or whatever it is, that's about who you are. So people on the highway can say, yes, I saw this blue car with this emblem on it. The same thing is true when you put information out there. It doesn't necessarily mean people know who was in the car, you know, how many miles the car, which gas you have, but it just means that they saw your car. And that's what happens with your data. So all of these companies out there as you're parsing through Google, going on to CNN, on to Ukraine or wherever you're going, everyone of those footsteps puts you a little bit more vulnerable than you were before. So with Google, eh, all they're going to do is send you some ways to donate to Ukraine if you type in Ukraine or something like that. So that's what they're going to do. But these other people are a little bit more nefarious because they're trying to get information about you and why you're following this pattern. And I think I asked you this last time we talked about these apps. So why have companies gone to creating their own apps now? Everybody wants you to download their app. And that's about making sure that the data that you have when you're, so if you want to go to Chick-fil-A, instead of going to Chick-fil-A.com on Google, if you go to your Chick-fil-A app, Chick-fil-A now knows everything about you and what you're doing. So, you know, how many chicken nuggets did you order? You know, how often do you come? Do you like your tea sweet? You know, they have all that information about you. So it's just, you should be careful about how you maneuver the internet. And we're not telling you not to maneuver all you want to just be safe while you're out there. Yeah. Yeah. And that reminds me of, uh, this sort of came up, uh, last week where, uh, uh, I had a few days on my own where I had to get breakfast for the kid, which was, you know, not easy for me as someone who doesn't always do that. And so one day I was like, you know what, I'm going to go to uh, Dunkin' Donuts and I'm going to get us some donuts and we can like have those for a couple mornings. And I got in there and the, uh, there were like a lot of people lined up and the people in Dunkin' Donuts were like, Hey, uh, our, cash registers are down just download the app and make your order and we'll give it to you on the other side and like i had that like angel and devil on my shoulders where you know the angel was saying like drew just walk out you don't need those donuts and the devil was like drew you really want those donuts just download the app and get it over with and i'll, I'll be honest like the devil won in this instance i was like i really want those donuts i downloaded the app ordered it was incredibly easy like I mean it took like 30 seconds including like walking over to the counter and picking up what they just put together uh but then the angel side of me came back and said okay you ordered it now just delete the app and that's what I did so it's like if you want to use it for convenience that's great and they probably did learn a lot about me during those you know 10 minutes that I had the app installed but I also don't want a Dunkin Donuts app sitting on my phone all the time for the like once every three months that I might actually use it. So next time I may download the app again and order it, but I'm not going to keep it on my phone because it's, it's just, yeah, it just feels so gross. <laughs> so um, we, we recently got a, a second dog. We have a beagle and my son is a, you know, he loves new technology. And so he brought his dog. He has a German shepherd. And he brought his dog uh, FI collar. And it tracks how often they sleep, how much they, oh. how many steps they take a day, you know, all this stuff, great stuff. Yeah. So when we got the, the beagle, he brought us a collar for that dog, right? And so when we installed the app on our phone, it required that location be enabled all the time. And I never do that. Never. Yeah. Never. And so I couldn't use the app because I, every, as soon as I would click on the app to see something, it would say, enable location services i'm like i'm not doing that you know so i ended up having to delete the app period because it didn't make sense to me but you know like 
like when the dog is asleep at night and the dog goes to sleep at eight or nine o'clock at night from nine o'clock at night till seven o'clock in the morning why does it need to know where i am the dog is asleep and and we're in the house you know we're not so yeah. yep it's a trade-off it really is the devil and the angel on your shoulders about these things so what are you giving and what are you getting yeah. and is it enough to make it realistic to do it right so if mm-hmm. if if you think the angel part of you says, oh, go ahead and do it and, you know, enable your location service music, that's the best thing for you, then have at it. Mm-hmm. But for the devil side, is what is this app doing on your phone? So what is, or wherever you got it, what does it collect the mm-hmm. whole time you're, every time you do something or every time you go to the app, what is it collecting? When you walk the dog or when you feed the dog, what is it collecting about you and why? Yeah. Yeah. And it could be like so much more like location is a big one, but it could be tons of other things that that thing is collecting in the background and just like happily sending on. Right. It's uh, it's, it's lots of stuff that these apps can do and probably shouldn't, but because they can and because app makers can make money from it, it's, you know, very easy for them to sort of abuse their power and abuse your trust of that company to do whatever with it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we're probably uh, at time. We um, are. Continue, we will continue with uh, Drew answers in our next session because we have some more questions to ask Drew. And uh, we'll see you guys later. Thank you for listening to Eminent Teachnology. If you like the show, please review, subscribe, and recommend us to your friends and family. We'd love to hear feedback from you as well. You can email us at eminentteachnology at gmail.com. See y'all soon.